Today is a, uh, it's not hyperbole to suggest a very solemn moment. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. They didn't limit it, they simply took it away. That's never been done to a right so important to so many Americans, but they did it. It's a sad day for the court and for the country, but this decision must not be the final word. My administration will use all of its appropriate lawful powers, but Congress must act. And with your vote, you can act. You can have the final word. This is not over. That was President Biden Friday reacting to what may be the most consequential Supreme Court decision in decades, a 6-3 ruling overturning Roe versus Wade. For nearly half a century, women have had a constitutional right to abortion. Now they don't. Because, as Justice Samuel Alito wrote in the majority opinion, Roe was, quote, egregiously wrong from the start, end quote, informed by what he called, quote, exceptionally weak reasoning. The new ruling from the court ditching what seemed like well-settled precedent is certainly to inflame passions and, as Biden insisted, the fight is not over. His administration, with the backing of virtually every Democrat in Congress, will seek to pass a federal law codifying the right to abortion. But even if such legislation could overcome a near-certain filibuster from Senate Republicans and actually pass, would that supersede the actions of more than a dozen state legislatures that now seem poised to ban abortion outright? We'll discuss with veteran Supreme Court watcher and author David Kaplan, and then we'll hear from former Deputy Attorney General Donald Ayer, a former Supreme Court clerk himself, to get his take on what the decision means, as well as the extraordinary testimony in front of the January 6th committee this week from three former Justice Department officials who threatened to resign rather than assist the efforts of Donald Trump to overturn the 2020 election. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. And we are joined by the aforementioned David Kaplan. David, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. We find ourselves talking about uh, Roe v. Wade again, don't we? Yes, definitely the subject du jour. Um, So we've got two lawyers uh, on this. um, Are you a lawyer, Kaplan, by the way? Or are you just I, a I'm a licensed member of the New York State Bar, but don't tell anyone. Okay. You're also a law professor, I believe. I, I wouldn't mention something. that either. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I just did. Anyway, this is not a joking matter. We've had this decision. We've been expecting it now for some weeks, ever since uh, the, a draft was leaked. But to actually see it and read it is pretty stunning. Victoria, why don't you go first? Uh, You've had a chance to review it. You worked on these issues for years at Senate Judiciary. Give us your take. Well, I think to start with the opinion, given how long it has been sought 
I would say it was it was well written. It was well rehearsed. It made the argument for overturning Roe about as well as you could expect any court decision to make it. That being said, it's undoubtedly going to unleash and unloose years worth of legal and social chaos within the United States. And I would add to it, in addition, that Clarence Thomas, in his concurrence, certainly helps make the case that the decision that they issued today um, is going to unleash that chaos. He uh, takes advantage of the decision that was made overturning Roe versus Wade to go further and suggest that decisions regarding contraception and gay rights, gay marriage should be overturned. But more important, I suppose, than the decision itself, as I say, is what the implications of it over the course of the next few years, both as it works its way out through the states and as the kind of ongoing questions about the legitimacy of the court shake its way through our society. Yeah, I mean, politically, I mean, there's going to be battles in state legislatures across the country now as they craft laws. There'll be endless litigation surrounding those laws, I would imagine. And then, of course, Thomas, you know, almost inviting constitutional challenges to other well-settled precedents or precedents in any case, including gay marriage and even contraception. Kaplan, your two cents. Well, you know, I'm struck by the juxtaposition of today's ruling and and the ruling yesterday on gun control. You know, just yesterday, the justices took away from legislatures and we, the people, the ability to make decisions on regulating guns. That was not for democracy. And yet, less than 24 hours, six of the justices are, are telling us that this contentious issue, abortion, belongs to the people. So which is it? It's hard not to be a cynic and not see this as a matter of principled decision making, which is what we expect from our judges and merely a partisan decision based on, you know, what do you think about guns or abortion? All right. But but the distinction here is, as uh, anybody from the Federalist Society would tell you, is on guns. It's in the Constitution. There's a Second Amendment. And as Alito rights in his opinion today, there's no mention of abortion. I'm not sure how deep we want to get in the weeds in that, but there is no mention of an individual right to have a gun in the Constitution. There is something about bearing arms, but for more than 200 years of American history and a Supreme Court in place, having rule on this question, there was no mention of this. Do you know what changed? The change is we got the Heller decision. Well, yeah, yeah. And in theory, at least what they taught me in law school, you know, is that the law is not supposed to simply be a matter of who sits on the court in any matter. I, I want to talk about, you know, just something Victoria mentioned, and you mentioned as well, Mike, certainly there, it's, it's me, this is going to be a contentious political issue. But, you know, along the lines of, of observing that the Democrats can be really bad at politics, I'm just hardly certain that come the midterms, later this year or two years from now, that abortion is going to be a central issue. I hope it is. I mean, I hope one of the byproducts of this ruling is that we do hash it out democratically and politically. If the Democrats are smart, I think they wouldn't isolate abortion. You know, I I think they, they should lump it together with abortion, guns, the prospect of Donald Trump coming back. I agree with you that it's hard to know. And the level of passion and fury 
over I mean, we saw it after the draft decision was leaked, and now that it's real, you know, I think you're going to continue to see it, is going to move voters, is, is going to energize Democrats. The, quest, the question is, how much? And maybe, I think there's a reasonable chance that it will be enough for Democrats to hold on to the Senate. They might even end up with, you know, a, a, slight, you know, a slightly larger majority in, in the Senate. In the House, I think that's an entirely different question. So what I want to flag, you know, leaping almost immediately to the politics of this is that in, in three states, we've got governorships up and Senate seats up where this issue is incredibly hot and important. And that is Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, and most particularly in Wisconsin and Michigan, where both of those states have so-called zombie laws on the books. Those are states that have very old statutes that bar abortions that are almost 100, and in, in the case of Wisconsin, more than 100 years old, and where each of those states, it is entirely unclear what's going to happen um, in terms of the enforcement of those statutes, and in each of those states have very large pro-choice majorities. And so this decision is going to galvanize the gubernatorial races, I think, in both of those states. And there's a Senate race in Wisconsin, and, and Ron Johnson... Ron Johnson is vulnerable, and in Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's to my point about the yeah. Senate. But uh, we should talk about the decision a little bit more before we you know, just dive into the, the politics. And I guess I, I want to ask both of you to talk a little bit more about the Thomas concurrence. I don't think, David, you've addressed that, and whether you think his, as Isakoff put it, you know, inviting people out there to challenge Obergefell, the gay marriage case, and... Um, also, didn't uh, he mention Lawrence, the uh, uh, anti-sodomy? Uh, homosexual intimacy, I think he called yeah. it, right? He calls out both gay rights decisions yeah. on sodomy and on marriage, but also on contraception. Before you want to isolate Thomas, I mean Clarence, not Ginny, before you want to isolate his lone concurrence today, remember that in 1997, he alone called for the court to finally take on the, the issue of individual gun rights. Nobody in the history of the Supreme Court had ever argued that. And within a decade, that lone dissent of his became the majority ruling of the Supreme Court. So the idea that Alito puts out in his majority opinion, without saying so explicitly, that Thomas is alone, the public need not worry about contraception or gay rights, is belied by the recent history of the court. I, I would also, I, I guess I would disagree with Victoria that Ali, about Alito's opinion. I argued in my book, The Most Dangerous Branch, that Roe was a deeply fought, flawed ruling. Different issue than whether it should have been overturned. I don't think it should have been, but I'm no fan of Roe v. Wade. But I, I, I think many other judges could have done a far better job than Alito's rant. And if you wanna read a really good opinion today, the assignment would be to read The Dissent. It's authored by the three liberals, but it clearly has Elena Kagan's fingerprints all over it in terms of writing style. And it, it is as elegant a takedown of a majority opinion as you can imagine. And on the question of Thomas's uh, concurrence specifically, uh, her explanation of why you need to worry is as good as any I've read. Can yeah. I just, uh, you know, Thomas, what he said in that concurring opinion is that those opinions, the gay rights opinions and the contraception opinion, are like 
Roe in the sense that they rest on the uh, 14th Amendment due process interpretation of the Constitution, saying that all that, that was the grounds upon which the court had rested these opinions. Now, as I recall, and David, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, didn't uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg have a similar, you know, critique of Roe early on in her career? She thought that resting Roe on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment was wrong. That was a tactical point right. that she was making because her view was that you could be grounded in the equal protection clause. Well, she right? thought the equal protection clause would be stronger. And I, I don't know if Thomas, how Thomas would, you know, react to that. To he the, wouldn't agree with argument. that. Is our, he, he wouldn't I'm agree. Yeah. Yeah. They addressed in their opinions today why they think the equal protection argument is no better than the due process argument. But RBG, shortly before she became a justice, gave that highly publicized, intentionally so, speech at NYU, in which she said Roe went too far, too fast. She very clearly wanted to sound moderate, and that indeed was her view. And that was before the gay rights decisions had come out. But sure, on a clean slate, she would not have joined Roe. I don't think Breyer would have. I'm not sure that Kagan would have. But those are, of course, wholly different issues of what of what you do now since the decision has been on the books. There are very few lawyers and professors who argue that Roe was a particularly good decision. And Alito trots out a lot of their names in his opinion, including, of course, Larry Tribe, who must be spinning today to see his words used (laughs) against him in, in this majority opinion. All right. So let me ask you about the question I posed at the start of this, which is assuming, I mean, you know, Biden said and the Democrats are saying they're going to try to pass a federal law codifying the right to abortion. So let's assume that they could actually do that, which seems which they 100 percent can't, can't, can't because exactly. of the 100 yeah. percent. Right. For the, okay. for, for the avoidance of any doubt. <laughs> OK. It All can't right. be but done. that's that's what the that's the hill the Democrats want to you know, fight on to at least try to show they're, they're doing something. But even if they were able to pass that. You're going to have, you know, as I said, more than a dozen states that will outright ban abortion. Professor Isikoff, you are correct. Well, let me finish the question before you you start the answer, which is, can a federal law supersede the states if they pass laws that ban abortion outright? On the question of abortion, Professor Isikoff, it's a very good question. And of course, the Supreme Court, which never wants to hear about abortion, again, would ultimately (laughs) have to decide. Congress cannot willy-nilly pass any law at once. We do have states making their own decisions. And And on a health question like abortion, it is hardly clear why that's a federal issue. If you if you look at congressional legislation in the House that's already been proposed, on federalizing Roe. There are a bunch of paragraphs that attempt to explain why this is a federal issue, and they're really weak. They explain that both abortion itself and the providing of health care is an important issue among citizens among the various states. But that's a pretty slim read. You could use that to, to justify almost any law dealing with health. And that's not what Congress's powers are. 
In another world, that is the one before this morning, Congress could argue that such a statute was necessary to enforce constitutional rights. But I just checked. Abortion is not a constitutional right anymore. And Congress can't willy-nilly create rights, which it then says we need a, stat- well, a it, statute. It was until this morning. But Victoria, if you had your old job at Senate Judiciary, you would be assigned right now to be trying to write that federal legislation. Um, would you be able to do it in a way that would supersede what the states do? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I could write something that would somehow or another attempt to pen the abortion right to kind of the commerce clause and, you know, kind of the authority of the federal government to regulate commerce amongst the states. I mean, I do think for what it's worth that it wouldn't be all that hard to write a piece of legislation that would withstand muster that would deal with the interstate mailing of Plan B or of certain, you know, kind of other forms of contraception. I think I think you could probably write a because it's law interstate that, would, that you could say because that's interstate commerce. Right. Right. And whether or not you could whether or not you could find all of the necessary kind of facts to, you know, kind of get it in under the commerce clause, I don't know. But I do know that it would face were it enacted, which for the record it never will be. But were it enacted, it would face an implacably hostile Supreme Court that's also potentially itching to declare fetuses persons under the 14th Amendment. And so it's it's a fool's errand, stem to stern, to try to do it from a legal perspective. And even from a political perspective, I can't for the life of me imagine that anyone is going to actually believe that this is, you know, that this is Congress and Biden really fighting for them on this issue. Victoria, since you mentioned crossing state lines, it made me think about another concurring opinion in this case, which kind of caught my eye. And and I kind of wonder if it represents a tiny bit of a silver lining for people who support the right to abortion. And that was Kavanaugh, who pretty flatly stated in his concurrence that a state can't bar one of its residents from traveling to another state uh, to get an abortion, you know, which is... Isn't that what the Texas law tried to do? I think so, yeah. And I think he said that there's a constitutional right to interstate travel. Uh, I don't fully understand all of the legal reasoning there. But I did see that. It caught my eye. If one Mm -hmm. justice says that in a concurrence. Yeah. I look forward to I look I look forward to his five four to his joining the four the three liberal justices on a five four decision on this. And by the way, speaking of five four, that also I think you were being uh, I, a little facetious there. I, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Sorry, yes. I, I, people so. couldn't see yeah. you smiling the way we did. Rolling my eyes and rolling your eyes. Yeah, but five yeah. uh, four also made me think about Roberts here because, well, Isakoff in, in in the intro called it a a six three decision to overturn Roe. Is that right? Because to me, it looked like like it was a 6-3 decision to uphold the Mississippi law, but Roberts is actually saying something a little bit different. No, Roberts is saying something very different. Roberts is saying, I would not have overturned Roe. I would, right. He, he really is saying, perhaps, I, I would leave that to another day. But I wouldn't call the sole Roberts concurrence, you know, to be a rant. It was more a lament. But what I'm struck by, since you bring up the Chief Justice, two years ago, before Uh, Barrett went on the Supreme Court. We talked about the Roberts Court. We talked about him being the key pivot. We talked about him being the most important chief justice 
nearly 100 years because he would control the day on lots of key rulings. And until just now, we didn't even bring up his name. I, I'm not lamenting the job of being the 17th Chief Justice of the United States. He'll be there 15 or 20 more years. It's a great gig, but he's irrelevant at this point. And from, from a position of power, it's the elite um, of he court. looks to his right and he sees there are five votes to do anything. Well, that was the question I was going to ask. Is it the Alito court? Who is the intellectual force on the conservative side? Or is it just such a mind meld? Maybe it's Thomas at this or point. Or is it just such a mind meld at this point that it's just a kind of a collective group and there isn't one? It, it isn't going to be any particular justice's court for a while. If you forced me to, if, if, if two years ago, I would, you know, I, I, I've long said that Roberts and Kagan were the intellectual engines of this court. If you were to force me to choose among the five radical conservatives, who's the intellectual leader, I'd go on NPR. I don't think I could choose one of, of one of them for you. Today, it'll be one of them. Today, it'll be another one. But you mentioned Thomas. No, I don't think so. Alito, no, I don't think so. Listen, they're all smart. There are no dunderheads on the court, but I'm not sure on any particular day who will be in charge. I was struck by, given the makeup of the five, that it's Alito who wrote for the court because Thomas could have claimed this opinion for himself. And I think that's curious. As the most senior. Yeah. As the most senior judge, he controls the writing and he could easily have written an opinion without dealing with, you know, gay rights and contraception and written separately on that question. Given your mention of dunderheads, I want to pivot to the um, extraordinary testimony of the Justice Department officials, the former Justice Department officials this week, resisting the uh, dunderhead pressure campaign to overturn the 2020 election. I thought that the the testimony from Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, and Stephen Engel was absolutely riveting. This was Watergate-level stuff, describing in detail Rosen saying how Trump every day from December 15th on, except for Christmas, got a call from Trump pushing him to do something to declare that there was fraud in the election and overturn the results. Uh, that leads to this unbelievable series of meetings in which Trump is trying to install Jeffrey Clark, this you know environmental lawyer, as the head of the department to do his bidding. It's Trump is told he would inherit a graveyard at the Justice Department because everybody would resign. It was pretty extraordinary stuff. Kaplan, what do you think? You mentioned those hearings. I was struck by how the close-knit community of Washington, who was one of the star witnesses before the committee, Mike Ludig, testifying about how he had advised Vice, Pre Vice President Pence. For listeners who don't recall, when John Roberts was up for the Supreme Court in 2005, President Bush, 43, interviewed three people, John Roberts, a federal judge from Virginia, and Mike Ludig, in a, who was a federal judge at the time. In a different world, the chief justice today might be Mike Ludig, and we wouldn't have had him at the hearings. But uh, to your point about the testimony this week, I completely agree with you. I was, I was thunderstruck by them, but you know, Watergate, summer of 1973 was a very different time. And I'm just not sure how much of this is going to register with the 30% or so of the population who believes that 
January 6th was yesteryear. It's no different than riots in Portland and the election was stolen. It's it's tragic to me. But I, I happen to agree with you that in the history of this event and the investigations that were done, uh, this week was a signal event. And I will be curious to see what indictments come out of this. I, I am more I believe more now now than a week ago that you're going to see indictments. And I think the raid at Clark's house was important. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Let's not lose sight of the fact that just before the hearing began, the the FBI executed a warrant on the house of a former assistant attorney general of the Department of Justice and uh, ostensible acting attorney general. That's a pretty devastating thing to have happened. And meanwhile, someone who was in close communication with Donald Trump about some of these conspiracies, alleged conspiracies that they are investigating, like the plan to use false electors in an effort to overturn the election. Those call logs, they showed repeated calls from Jeffrey Clark, the guy whose house was raided by the FBI, and the White House, including one in which he's referred to as the acting attorney general, a sign that Trump actually was going to make him the acting attorney general. And the only thing that stopped him, I think, was when Donahue explained If you do that and that letter goes out, the story isn't going to be Justice Department declares election was corrupt and needs to be redone in Georgia. The story is going to be the entire leadership of the Justice Department has just resigned in protest. It's going to be another Saturday night massacre. And I think that's what registered with Trump saying, oh, you mean I won't be able to dictate what the story is. This is not going to be helpful to me. It's going to hurt me. And I think that's what gave him pause. Just one final thing before we get off of this. I know in previous episodes, I have given the uh, committee some flack for not producing the evidence to back up the claim the first night that multiple members of Congress sought pardons after January 6th. At the hearing Thursday, they did. I'd still like to see more. We saw clips from some of the testimony, but at least we learned which multiple members they were talking about and what the basis was. You had members of the White House staff saying they had been contacted by these folks. So given that I had criticized the committee previously and they have now... Um, now, a couple of them denied it, I think. A couple of them still denied it, which is why I'd like to see it. more. Yeah, right. But the testimony was was pretty compelling. Yeah. And by the way, the one the thing that was most striking was Matt Gates seeking a pardon from early December before the events of January 6th. And clearly his concern was not about the election. It was about the investigation into his personal conduct that has been going on for some time. You haven't sought a pardon, right, Mike? I have a standing request. I think he's for seeking a, a pardon right pardon. now by, agno- right. by acknowledging a from our listeners who give yeah. me flack <laughs> for criticizing the January 6th committee. Anyway, by the way, I, I will say that I, I did actually run into a faithful skullduggery li- listener on the street the other day who said that he was very pleased that you, Isakoff, acknowledge your fallibility. Um, because a couple of episodes ago, you, what was it that you did? You started off the, uh, I've done lots. Yeah. Well, you started off the episode by saying that you were wrong about something. About the number of 
Republicans that, that Jackson would, vote, would get right? would, would vote for the confirmation of uh, yeah uh, Judge Jackson yeah well listen I have many opportunities to point out my fallibility uh, as do our loyal listeners so uh, anyway we got a great other guest for this episode Don Ayer the former Deputy Attorney General of the United States so let's get to it. And we are now joined by Donald Ayer, a former deputy attorney general during the first Bush administration. Don, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Great to be here. We, of course, wanted to talk to you about the absolutely riveting testimony before the January 6th committee on Thursday from former Justice Department officials standing up to the president. But before we get to that, we have had these two momentous Supreme Court rulings come out this week on guns and abortion, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. You were a former Supreme Court clerk yourself to the um, then associate, later Chief Justice, William Rehnquist. So want to get, just to start out, your take on what the Supreme Court has done this week and what this means for the country. Well, I, th I think what they've done this week is what everybody who's been paying attention lately thought they would do, but that isn't to minimize the consequences of it, because what it represents is the takeover of a majority of seats, five, by justices who are pretty much in lockstep, not 100%. They don't see everything eye to eye all the time. But, but there are now five justices who are homed in on the philosophy that really began to become very substantial and ultimately quite dominant began in the 80s, but the whole idea of original intent and a, a kind of a rigid view of textualism and the way the court should decide cases. The reality of what the court's done over the years is, you know, make a lot of hard judgment calls, weighing arguments on both sides of a case. And what we're seeing now is a number of very, very significant, because of the rights involved, cases um, in which there are five justices who are ready to proceed in a kind of a mechanical jurisprudential way, saying simply, hey, we're going to look at the original, when it's possible to do this, we're going to look at the original intent, and at the original intent doesn't read out in a certain way, we're, we're, we're not going we're, we're to follow a certain course. So Roe v. Wade, there's nothing in the Constitution that mentions abortion. So essentially, there's no basis to have a right to abortion. So the Second Amendment, we've now been told that we're simply, in, in Justice Thomas's opinion, we're simply going to look at what historical practice was as far as limiting the right to carry, to, to bear arms. And if in 1791, there wasn't a limitation engaged in, in substantial number of jurisdictions of a certain, in a, carrying guns in a certain situation, then we're not gonna allow the limitation. And so you've got this statute being struck down that's been around for what, over a hundred years. And I'm afraid that's gonna be the wave of the future in an increasing number of cases, a very mechanical, 
form of jurisprudence that doesn't look at consequences. That's the biggest single thing. Don, if you think that's the dominant philosophy of the majority of the Supreme Court going forward, just give us a sense of the cases, the issues that may now be uh, vulnerable to being overturned. So we're talking about potentially contraception, gay marriage, are those dominoes that you think could fall based on what you're seeing in the court? I don't, I will do, but I believe I've been told that Clarence Thomas's opinion today says those should be in their sights. I think the reality is, I think, that a lot of the greatest threats in terms of our system of government and, and what we count on as making our system function are going to be ways in which the, the court actually, in many cases, will invoke uh, newly expanded constitutional rights to limit the powers of government. For example, last term and this term, dealing with COVID limitations, the court struck down efforts of local government, which historically are at the apex when it comes to public health. That's who gets to make the hard discretionary calls about public health. And the court multiple times last year struck down local regulations of, of assembly limitations based on COVID saying, look, you can't have, uh, including churches, you can't have more than 50 people in a building of a certain size. Well, the court struck that down multiple times as limiting free exercise. The court has uh, last year also struck down the idea that a state an agency dealing with foster parents, uh, selecting foster parents, they had a requirement that said you have to accept gay parents, gay couples. And the Supreme Court struck that down and said that violates free exercise because if the agency doesn't want to do that, that would violate their obligations. This term, the courts got before it, and we're going to see it very soon, a case involving a textualist issue, and it's got to do with the Clean Air Act, where the effort to limit climate, deal with climate change, and the breadth of the reading of the Clean Air Act in terms of the powers of EPA in order to do that. And the court is almost certainly, given the argument, going to strike down what everybody thought was a power to regulate in certain ways. So, there's just a lot, a lot of areas. Next term, they've got affirmative action in higher education coming up. Um, next term, they've got uh, issues about the Clean Water Act and what are the waters of the United States. Essentially, the issue there, you know, the what can EPA regulate as the waters of the United States? And the fear is that they're going to say you can't regulate creek beds that only have water in them intermittently, but when they they have water in them, the, the stuff runs downhill, and it runs downhill into navigable waters and pollutes the navigable waters. Aha, but there's no water in it part of the year. So is the court going to say those aren't the waters of the U.S.? Anyway, lots and lots and lots of things like that. 
inevitably in the aftermath of these decisions, and I think particularly the overturning of Roe versus Wade, there are going to be renewed calls in some quarters for changing the makeup of the court, expanding the court. It will be argued that it is intolerable for a Supreme Court whose justices were appointed by presidents who did not even win the popular vote, making rulings that overturn the will of the majority of Americans. But of course, expanding the court is translates to many people packing the court, resonates with memories of FDR back in the 30s. Where are you on this? Is there a remedy given the makeup of the current court? Well, I don't I don't think practically speaking at this point there's any kind of a realistic remedy. I, I, I think on the question of should you or shouldn't you pack the court, I, I think where we are right now is a dreadful place. Where we would be if we if we somehow managed to pack the court, you know, by the political act of packing would be another dreadful place. Which is worse, I don't know, but it ain't gonna happen. As of now, there's no chance, barring a major political revolution where Democrats take over, it simply can't happen. So I, at, at this point, I, I, I'm not gonna say, you know, in a perfect world, if it were possible to do it, you should do it. I, I, I've always thought it would be highly regrettable to come in and pack the court for political reasons. I do think if we weren't where we are now, if we weren't at a place where the court has now acted out in an extraordinarily political way multiple times, and then we were simply saying, what's the optimum system? If we didn't have a highly political court and we could actually say, let's do a little tinkering with what is, you know, a perfectly okay system, but we could make it better. I think there's something to be said for terms on the court getting to the place where justices leave every two years. And, you know, they leave in the sense that they, they take on a, a senior status. And I think that might be a good idea, but that's off the table now too. None of these things are going to happen. We're, we're, we are really up shit creek, excuse my French. It's quite all right on this podcast. Uh, speaking of dreadful places, we had a president of the United States who was trying really hard to take us to a dreadful place by overturning the results of the 2020 election. We had this extraordinary testimony on Thursday from top Justice Department officials at the time, including one who had the job you once held, Deputy Attorney General, who stood up to the president of the United States and the relentless pressure he was putting on them and said, no, we're not going to do this. And if you do, we're all going to resign. You've no doubt watched the testimony. Give us your take on what Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, and Stephen Engel testified to on Thursday. Well, I think, I think we all obviously have to be very thankful that they drew the line as they did. I, I will say getting too carried away with celebrating the courage of people who signed up to go to work for Donald Trump long after everybody knew what a scoundrel he was. I, I always have a bit of hesitation about it, but the reality is that they acted in a very critically significant way to bring an end to something that could have gone far worse than it ended up doing. I guess the main significance that I attach and would, would highlight for your audience is 
the idea that we, we've all been, those of us who have been watching, I think have been riveted to each of these, particularly the last three hearings, where we've, in each case, we've seen something similar. We've seen drama in which there's a variety of, of pieces of conduct engaged in and a cast of individuals who happen to be in almost every case people who signed on with Donald Trump, people who are Trump people, people who are were his supporters, probably all people, almost everybody who voted for him. And in each of the three hearings, what we are treated to is a drama in which details come out about what went on. And what we're learning is that in each case, a cast of individuals who are Trump people resisted individually and collectively efforts which were brought to bear largely, and this is the most important point, by Donald Trump personally. And so in the, in the first hearing, we have the question of, well, what did he know and when did he know it? Did he know he'd lost the election? And of course, a lot of people have been saying, well, how are we going to show that he really wasn't just trying to redeem the true proper outcome because he really thought he'd won the election. And so um, we have him interacting with his own people in colorful and dramatic ways. Bill Barr, but not only Bill Barr, lots of other people telling him emphatically, no, there's no fraud over and over again. You lost the election. He can't reasonably believe that he won. And then, um, then you've got the drama that ensues with regard to Vice President Pence. And well, who is it? In what ways did people lean on Pence? And how did all that come about? And again, what do we learn? We learn that numerous people, Trump people, inside the White House people, are telling Donald Trump that this is a terrible idea. Now, Eastman is the exception mainly, and then there's others, but a handful only. But most everyone is saying, good Lord, this is insane. You can't do this. And who is doing the communicating? Who is doing the, the dirty work? Donald J. Trump is doing the dirty work. Donald J. Trump is the one who is taking the action in each and every case. Then we have the third hearing where we're talking about um, interfering in state processes and trying to overturn state vote counts. And we've got all that dramatic testimony um, from uh, Rusty Bowers in, in, in Arizona and from Brad Raffensperger and uh, um, Gabriel Sterling and, and others in, in Georgia. And just the story's the same, being told over and over again, a 67-minute phone call. So bottom line here, and, and this last hearing echoes that Donald Trump got told by many, many, many people who were his voters and supporters that certain things couldn't be done. And yet he personally weaves together a skein of events that are all designed to be mutually reinforcing in order to achieve the, the unthinkable, which is the overturning of our democratic system. So long-winded answer, but I come away with a sense that his personal culpability at this point is looking extremely, extremely high. I actually, I want to dig into that point that you just raised at the end there, uh, which is based on what you've seen, is the Justice Department's case 
of a potential criminal charges against Donald Trump stronger and, and how do they become stronger. But before we do that, just quickly, we've all been around the Justice Department for a long time. You, of course, were in a leadership uh, position. And one of the things that we used to kind of take for granted was that uh, the institution was imbued, and the lawyers who worked there were imbued with this sense of the importance of norms and traditions and fidelity to the rule of law. And I guess what I wanted to ask you and what I kept thinking as I was listening to the former deputy attorney general and and acting attorney general and and others testifying yesterday is, should the, the lesson of what happened in December and early January of 2020 and 2021, that the enduring strength of our system, or is it really more about the fragility of our system today? In other words, should the American people feel comforted by what happened in that episode, that the system worked? Or are you concerned that uh, Donald Trump and his presidency has exposed, you know, a kind of a fragility and a danger that the next time it might not, the system might not hold up? Yeah, well, I, I think I, I think we all thought a couple of things before Donald Trump came on the scene. I, I mean, people who think about the Justice Department, I think I think we thought that we had a pretty strong system of checks and balances within the government and within uh, the executive branch in terms of the way our law enforcement process works and the way every all, all the powers that that department wields are used. And, and there were some of them are in, are in law. And as you mentioned, some of them are really in norms. And the norms, you know, for those of us like, like the three of us who've been sort of watching the Justice Department since at least the 80s, these are norms that really were put in place just before we kind of arrived to be watching by Ed- Edward Levy and also Griffin Bell. And the role that all these sort of internal principles and all of us were guided by you know ideas that I think inspired generations of certainly lawyers in the department, you know about no person is above the law, and as an assistant U.S. attorney or any kind of a government lawyer, your allegiance to the truth and your allegiance to not only not lying but to being clear and even-handed and fair to everyone, and and yes, we strike firm blows, but not unfair blows. And, and just the, the ethic of the government lawyer as an advocate, but also as a highly principled person. And all of that held up, I think, extraordinarily well until Donald Trump arrived as president, and especially when Bill Barr arrived as attorney general, who we won't now probably want to take the time it would take, but all of the many, 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 many things that Bill Barr did to use the department for political reasons to help Donald Trump. I, you know, I was apoplectic about it, and so were a lot of people I know in terms of what they did to bust down the norms and some things that were more than norms that kept that sense of trustworthiness in the department. And so But Don, can I can I break in there because you sure. know, they did draw a line in the sand. And you know, for all the criticism that you and others gave Bill Barr turning the Justice Department into a political arm of the president, he didn't 
because he refused to promote the president's political goals when it counted the most for for Trump. And so in some ways, it's kind of heartening to see that Bill Barr and his top deputies stood up to an extraordinary pressure campaign by Donald Trump. And I, I find that heartening. I, I think that sort of takes well, away from some of the earlier criticism that these people were just doing the political bidding of the president. Well, I, 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 I agree. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I'm, I am I am glad that people at the end of the day, after Trump lost the election, you know, in, in large numbers, Trump people did not step up to do what Donald Trump wanted him to do. That doesn't change all the abuses that were engaged in in the prior under Bill Barr two years. But the bottom line is the norms that were in place and the fact that people made the right decisions is a positive thing. But the lesson I draw from it is that if you have people in leadership in this country who are of sufficiently bad character and are sufficiently dishonest and willing to use their powers as president, let's say, for bad ends in order to simply use the office for their own benefit and and violate the principles of our government, that would be Donald Trump, then these checks and balances, these norms can be overridden and they're not something that we can count on. So yes, I agree that the system held this time and I agree that people, some of whom who did a lot of pretty bad things previously, did draw a line, whatever their motives were, they drew a line and they didn't cross the ultimate line and support um, you know, the decisions that Trump would have wanted. And all of that's a good thing. But for 2024, especially following whatever's gonna happen in 2022, I think we've got a lot to be concerned about. So let's let's talk about, you know, how much Donald Trump has to be concerned about at this point. Another former attorney general and former skullduggery, multiple skullduggery guest, Eric Holder, tweeted after the hearing that one of the lines that Richard Donahue quoted the president as saying to him, I believe, in a phone call on December 27th, in which he was trying to get them to sign this crazy letter telling the state of Georgia they need to redo their election or change the results of their election. When Donahue pushes back, Trump says, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Holder said, that's a smoking gun right there. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's a statement that can be read. I think it's 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 quite a bit similar to his statement to Brad Raffensperger that I just want one more vote than I need, need. in your vote yeah. count. Right. And both of them can pretty easily be understood as saying, I don't care what the facts are. I just want to be able to get to my conclusion. And then the only thing I would, I think that's right. So I agree with him. Um, but I think the thing that I think laymen in the audience or anybody who hasn't prosecuted a bunch of cases needs to be aware of and maybe take some comfort from is that the issue of intent is always one, virtually always one that's proven by circumstantial evidence. It's proven by putting together collections of facts and saying as a reasonable person who knows sort of how people act, 
what can you conclude and how comfortable are you reaching that conclusion? And I think it's a mistake to spend too much energy just focusing on one thing. Yes, that's a very powerful piece of evidence. But the thing that I think is the biggest lesson of these hearings is that, and this is what you try to do as a prosecutor all the time, you put together all the really persuasive facts. And here, what we've got from the three major evidentiary hearings so far, the last three of the four, you have got an unbelievable amount of evidence that shows A, Trump plainly knew he'd lost the election, and B, Trump is personally engaged day in and day out. I mean, deed after deed after yeah, deed. Rosen said he got, he was getting calls from the president almost every day, except for exactly. Christmas. That was the one day he didn't. But from December 15th on, every day, Trump was on the phone with his acting attorney general trying to get him to overturn the election. Right. And just really trying to overwhelm people with his own domineering approach to things and his own insistence and new ideas. I mean, ideas like this conspiracy involving Italian satellites, ideas like bringing a, let's bring some sort of a lawsuit in the Supreme Court, which there's no standing to bring and no facts. Naming Sidney Powell as a special counsel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you know the whole idea of, of seizing voting machines. Let's get Ken Cuccinelli to seize voting machines. You know, I mean, just insane stuff. By the way, can I just say on that special counsel thing, you know, the whole point of special counsels is they're supposed to be when there might be a conflict of interest, you know, and so to avoid the perception of conflicts, you name a special counsel. So Trump was going to name one of his own personal lawyers as special counsel, which is like totally the opposite point of why you have a special counsel. To hold on to his own political power. (laughs) So it is it's a complete inversion of the intention of the special counsel uh, regulation. But Don, a couple of things. So I hear your point about all of you have to look at all these different evidentiary streams. I want to understand in, in terms of Trump's misuse of the Justice Department, as shocking and appalling as that was, unless he's involved in a clear case of, say, obstruction of justice, and he's, he's meddling in a criminal case, how do you see those activities, that conduct, as fitting into a larger criminal case? You're talking about the, the events with, with Rosen and, and Donahue. Yes, and, and trying all, to install yeah. his own yeah. crony yeah. at the Justice Department. Well, I, I think, you know, I don't know I don't think any of us know, at least I don't know, where all Jeff Clark would have gone with this. We obviously do know that he wanted to send this letter to Georgia, and the letter to Georgia was going to say, oh, you know, we found a bunch of irregularities here and, you know, and, and put them on alert about facts that were totally false. You know, presumably something similar might have gone to other states. Why would you send a letter like that? to Georgia, well, they're leaning on at the same time frame. You've got the communications with Watson and Raffensperger down there. You're leaning on these people. Well, if, if they just got a letter from the Justice Department saying, we got facts, we got facts that show irregularity there, what effect is that going to have on them in terms of their response? It was, a to me, that part of it, and that may not be all of it. You know, once you've got Clark installed as the attorney general, 
what all might you get him to do? Maybe he brings the stupid lawsuit in the Supreme Court. Maybe, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different things he might do. But that by itself is very much a mutually reinforcing step. We know what effect might it have had on Mike Pence? Uh, we don't know. I mean, he certainly didn't know at the time what effect it might have. So I think what's really important is some collection of people and the group that's possible, you know, is is dwindling very fast because most people said you're crazy. But but John Eastman, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, you know, a couple of other low level lawyers and Donald Trump appear to be the ones who are driving this train. And it's a multifaceted train. It's dealing with Pence. It's dealing with the states. It's, you know, it's a lot of different things. And who's the main actor in every instance? Donald Trump. Let me just follow up on one other thing that you said before uh, about intent, because clearly the uh, Trump and his supporters are, are going to be arguing that he genuinely believed the election was stolen from him. And actually, there was a quote in the New York Times today from this uh, British documentary filmmaker that has emerged who has many, many hours of taped interviews with Trump and his family, both before January 6th and January 6th. The documentary uh, filmmaker said, you know, he went into it thinking that there's no way in the world that Trump actually believes he won the election. But after he did all the interviews, he's 100 percent certain he does believe that the election, he believes the election was stolen from him. But there's this notion of willful ignorance that's been thrown around. Is that a, an actual legal concept? Yeah, well, and it, and it, and it absolutely is um, that, that, you know, it's an instruction that, that can be given in a criminal case where someone is claiming that they, they, they didn't know something, so they didn't have the right intent. And if, if you can show that, that the conduct engaged in was essentially that of someone who was militantly refusing to take cognizance of a, of, of a set of facts and was proceeding simply based on his desired fact situation that something wasn't true and was basically being willfully ignorant. He was willfully not dealing with the reality which was presented to him. And here, you know, the evidence that he didn't win the election was presented to him over and over and over again by people he trusted. So I think that's a it's a real bona fide concept and one that I think works very, very powerfully here. So Don sort of Bottom line right now is um, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, is going to have to make a decision. It's clear the Justice Department has expanded its investigation into the events surrounding January 6th. We just learned, just as this hearing was taking place on Thursday, that the FBI conducted a search of Jeffrey Clark's home early in the morning, a pretty clear indicator that he is among those being targeted. But the question that Garland will have to decide is, does he bring the first criminal case against a former president that the Justice Department has ever brought? And then, you know, he has to weigh that, all the evidence that you've been laying out here with the perception of uh, that this would have would have this banana republic taint to it of going after the former president. How do you see the two sides of that argument? And what would you do if you were uh, in Merrick Garland's shoes? Well, I think we're I think we're very lucky now to have an attorney general that is someone who is very concerned about the norms that 
did kind of get trashed over the last at least couple of years of the Trump administration. And, you know, indeed, he's been criticized by some people for being so attentive to being even handed and to not um, being willing to, to sally forth out into anything that resembles political attacks of any sort on his predecessor. The cases, the hundreds of cases that have gone forward with regard to the demonstrations, you know, have been handled in, in the regular even-handed way. He has made, I think, highly appropriate but very general statements that they they are no respecter of rank and they're going to follow their leads up the chain and you know go as high as the evidence will support. I, I take him at his word about that. And I, I think that because he is so focused on those norms, on being fair and even-handed and doing the job that he's assigned to do, we can expect him to be paying attention to the rules that are in place. And some of those rules give some real guidance here about when you do and when you don't bring a prosecution. One set of guidelines gives a list of factors to consider and, and three of them that are right up at the very top. The one at the, super, at the, at the absolute top talks about, well, do we have a particular target to pursue that kind of a case, you know, talking talking administratively in a very general way, but that the second the second one on the list is the one that you think would be, and that is the nature and character of what's at stake. How serious is this conduct? And when you talk about what is a, a massive, in the sense of multifaceted conspiracy to overturn our democratic process, which is what we've got, nobody I think would seriously say that isn't at the absolute highest level of seriousness. The second, the next level down, the, the, it's the third one on the list, the second one after character of the conduct is what about the importance or non-importance of deterrence? Is that an issue? Is there a need to be ready to go forward to deter conduct? Well, we are in the utterly unique situation, not only of having lived through what we lived through, but having every reason to think that people are working full-time to reenact something similar in 2024. So the idea that there's a need for deterrence in order to prevent this from happening, again, of the absolute highest dimension priority, that's critical. The third and last of these three factors is the one that I think the hearings have helped us with the most, and that is the culpability of the individual that you're talking about. And here, we know a lot more than we knew a couple, a few weeks ago about Donald Trump's personal involvement, the degree to which he's the one making it go, the degree to which he is doing this amazingly over the protests, objections, and resistance of his own numerous supporters who spoke up in many, many, many different ways to try to dissuade him. So his culpability is you know, I would have to say probably higher at this point from what we see, there's more to come. So we have to wait and see what develops. But I, I would not really have imagined that he could be so personally involved across the board in almost everything and doing it while being told repeatedly that it's wrong and he shouldn't be doing it. So I guess this translates, Don, that if you were in Merrick Garland's shoes, you would charge Donald Trump. What 
statutes? What crimes? Well, let me let me let me let me finish because I wouldn't quite go there yet. So okay. So first of all, we need to hear the rest of the story. We need we need to get the full picture of what else is out there, and we need and that includes what the department finds. That includes what did they find in Jeffrey Clark's residence? What you know, all all of these facts. So. All of that's got to get assimilated. And I, I am not going to be the one to say, oh, yes, absolutely, he must be charged. That's a judgment for the department to make. And there's one last piece of that judgment, and it's one that I think you indirectly alluded to. And that is the overarching question that gets asked after you've sort of weighed the priorities is, uh, is it more likely than not that you can convict? Do you feel that that's the case? And that's a judgment call to be made here as well. And a lot of people feel like, oh gosh, Donald Trump's a great liar and how do we know we'd convict him and you only need one person to hang the jury. And what about the consequences if that happens? Um, where would that leave the country? And all of those things are things that have to be taken into account. But I will just say, if the evidence that comes forward in the rest of these hearings and the rest of what the department gets is as strong as what we've seen so far, then I think the case for going forward with a prosecution will be quite strong. And one that the priority on protecting our country and protecting our future probably outweighs the risks on the other side. That's the judgment for the attorney general. Well, uh, you know, as much as uh, this uh, Roe decision is is a political earthquake for the country, and one can only imagine uh, what it will be like if the uh, Biden-Garland Justice Department charges Trump and um, what the political fallout from that will be. But as you say, um, it's at the end of the day, it's about the evidence, and the evidence is increasingly powerful here. Don, I want to thank you once again for joining us, and we'll definitely want to uh, stay in touch as this story unfolds. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.